You're listening to Aussie Fire, a guide to financial independence for Australians. We're big fans of sharing experiences and talking about money. But remember, any advice is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs or objectives. So consider whether it's appropriate for you. Chapter 16. Optimize Your Portfolio by Kurt from Perla. Optimization time, huh? Welcome to the big leagues. If you're at this stage, you should definitely have your financial house in order. Optimizing a bad foundation is a complete waste of time. So, what does financial house in order mean? It means you have zero bad debts. See chapters 2 and 3. It means you are maximizing your savings. See chapters 6, 7 and 8. It means you are maximizing your earnings. See chapter 9. It means you have an emergency fund in place, see chapter 10. And it means you are consistently investing, see chapters 11, 12a, 12b, and 13. If you don't look at that list and think to yourself, yes, yes, and yes, then stop listening now and go straight to the chapter that you're not sure about and make sure you've got it covered. Honestly, if you've ticked off everything up to this point, you should already achieve fire. This section's aim is just to help you get there a little bit faster. But if you don't have everything up to this point covered, then you can read this section and you may still never reach it. So, first things first, get your financial house in order. Next point is that I can't say hand on my heart that researching and implementing the concepts contained in this section are actually the best way to spend your time. One of my favorite arguments against picking stocks is, look, Even if you could pick stocks in your free time better than the person at Goldman Sachs who gets paid to do it for a living, is that really going to give you the best return on your time? My key point here is that when we're dealing with relatively small amounts of money, like anything less than millions, the time spent getting an extra 1% return on your funds would usually be better spent working more in your main job or on the side, not to mention that an additional 1% return above vanilla ETFs for the same level of risk is extremely hard to do. For example, let's say you have a $100,000 portfolio and have the talents to earn 1% more than regular ETFs. How many hours would it take you to get that extra 1%? And would those hours spent be worth it? Well, let's assume that any time you spend optimizing your portfolio could be just as easily spent working additional hours somewhere, wherever, and being paid $50 an hour. Here's how the numbers look. See page 194 for a chart that plots optimizing your portfolio or working more. The summary is though, if you have to spend more than 20 hours getting an extra 1% return on a $100,000 portfolio, then it's just not worth it. So, now you're aware of the trade-off you're making from a purely financial point of view, and you're going into this optimization stuff with eyes wide open. Maybe it doesn't make sense for you to invest the time optimizing, but you're a personal finance nerd like me and enjoy working through this stuff. If so, welcome, you've just found Nirvana. Or maybe you are a high roller, hashtag fatfire, and it makes complete sense for you to invest the time optimizing your portfolio. Either way, this chapter and this whole section is written for people like you. Okay, so when it comes to portfolio optimization, the place we need to start is with modern portfolio theory, or MPT, because this is the foundation you need to understand the risk-return consequences of your portfolio tweaks, which, when it comes to investing, 
is all that really matters. I will say though that getting into the nitty gritty of risk return optimization isn't light listening, so be warned. All right, time to get started. We're not getting any younger. An introduction to modern portfolio theory, MPT. MPT is a Nobel Prize winning investment theory pioneered by a bloke called Harry Markowitz in 1952 that today forms the basis of how most professional investors put together their portfolios, including hedge funds, managed funds, and super funds. It states that since most investors are risk averse, i.e. they don't want to have their portfolio go up and down dramatically and experience volatility, they require more return for taking on more of this risk and that for each level of risk, there is a corresponding combination of assets that maximizes return and that of all these portfolios, there is one that maximizes the risk return trade-off. This is known as the optimal portfolio. Note that the risk accounted for in this trade-off is systematic risk, which means the risk factors that are present affect the whole market and cannot be eliminated through further diversification. This type of risk is measured as standard deviation and therefore is a measure of how extreme market movements are, not necessarily the risk of losing your capital. We'll get into the difference in more detail later. Okay, so here's what the range of portfolios, known as the efficient frontier, looks like. The right axis is return in percentage per annum, and the horizontal axis is standard deviation. The line is the efficient frontier, MV stands for mean variance, the efficient frontier is comprised of solely non-cash assets. See page 196 of the ebook for a visual of the efficient frontier. So, where on the efficient frontier is this optimal combination of assets? To figure that out, we first need to introduce the concept of the risk-free rate, or RF, which is the rate that investors can borrow or lend money at. Theoretically, RF allows us to lend money by buying risk-free assets with extra cash or borrow money by loaning some extra cash to invest in the optimal portfolio. Then, if we draw a line between RF and the efficient frontier, the point on the efficient frontier that maximizes the slope is the optimal portfolio, i.e. that's point B in the optimal portfolio chart shown on page 197 of the ebook. Note that the gradient of the line between the risk-free rate and B is the Sharpe ratio, and the line itself is called the capital market line. This means that the portfolio of assets at point B maximizes the Sharpe ratio, and the best return achievable in the market for any level of risk is plotted along the capital market line. So how do we move along the capital market line? Well, any of these points can be achieved by allocating a proportion of funds to the optimal portfolio and the rest to cash. We can even allocate a negative proportion to cash, i.e. we move along the line by lending or borrowing at the risk-free rate with cash. Theoretically, investors move along the line to their own happy risk point by lending or borrowing at the risk-free rate to maximize the return they get for the amount of risk they're willing to bear. Problem is, in practice, investors cannot borrow at the same rates they can lend. Investors can lend close to the risk-free rate by buying government bonds. However, we will always pay a higher borrowing rate than what we can lend at. So, if our lending rate is different to our borrowing rate, then the capital market line becomes kinked, as shown below on page 198 of the ebook. In this case, 
Instead of having one optimal portfolio, there is a range of optimal portfolios between the two points of intersection of RF and RB. The higher the difference between points RF and RB, the greater the number of optimal portfolios and the more the benefit of leverage is reduced. Using figures at time of writing, the Australian government bonds yielded around 1% per annum, but most margin loans costed closer to 5% per annum. The update on that more recently is both figures have gone up by several percentage points. And so yes, it seems like an unfair trade. Plus, there's a bit of work involved in setting up margin accounts and monitoring asset values. This is why I personally dismissed leverage investing as a viable option for my own portfolio for a long time. Put theory into practice. As you've just read, MPT is built around the concept of an optimal or market portfolio. In theory, this optimal market portfolio is a bundle of investments that includes every type of asset available in the world financial market, with each asset weighted in proportion to its total presence in the market. Yes, the name kind of gives it away. But how do we invest in every asset in the world in the right proportions? Simply put, we can't. We're retail investors with limited time on our hands. But by using ETFs, we can get close enough with not much effort. First, we need to decide on how much risk we're comfortable with. As mentioned before, I don't think of this risk as risking capital loss, because it's not. Standard deviation is a function of volatility, not permanent loss, and therefore the true risk is being unable to withstand temporary value decline, psychologically or financially. This is a subtle difference, but an important one. The question I often hear new investors being encouraged to ask themselves is, can I afford to lose this money? Which is just so wrong. Thinking this way further reinforces the misconception that investing is gambling. The same misconception that stops so many Aussies from becoming investors in the first place. Instead, the question should be, what temporary value decline am I psychologically comfortable with and when might I need to access the capital I've invested? So, there are two parts to this question. Firstly, how can we measure our psychological ability to withstand temporary value decline? And secondly, what are our future needs for our invested capital? I think we can use past experience as a conservative way to estimate our psychological tolerance to temporary value decline. EJ, think about what's been the worst decline you've been able to write out and go from there. For me, this was the GFC. I made my first investments in 2007 and come 2008, my investments were worth 75% less. Perfect timing. Unfortunately, I wasn't investing in ETFs at this point. I didn't sell any shares until five years afterwards, so I expect I can ride out another 75% value decline if it were to happen, which by the way is extremely unlikely as I now mostly invest in ETFs. With COVID rocking the markets more recently, you should have a pretty good idea of how much volatility you can psychologically withstand. Were you stressed? Did you sell? Or didn't you even break a sweat? But what if you haven't had to deal with a market crash yet? Or you think my past experience approach sucks? Well, you're in luck. There are a bunch of risk profiling quizzes you can take, like this Finometrica one. The link is available on page 200 of the ebook. You can also just Google it. If you've got a .edu email, this quiz is free. And the front page of my report is shown below on that same page. My results were what I expected. 
I was towards the end of the risk return range and I imagine most FI investors would be towards the upper end of this range. Together, these two methods should give you a solid understanding of your investing psychology. Next, we've got to consider our future needs for invested capital, both planned and unplanned. This is hyper-personal and I don't know of a broad way to give guidance, but for the sake of explanation, here are my circumstances. One, I don't intend to access my current investment capital ever. This capital and a portion of my future capital is being used to become FI, financially independent, my number one financial goal. Two, I haven't set other personal financial goals yet. And apart from a lumpy income, my financial affairs and commitments are uncomplicated. Not married, no dependents, etc. Three, when new goals arise, I expect to be able to save for them in a way that doesn't compromise my FI investing strategy. In particular, when my life circumstances change and I want to purchase a house and other big ticket items, I don't think my need for capital to purchase these items will ever be so urgent as to force me to sell at bad prices, if I need to sell at all. Four, I have private health insurance and always cover myself with insurance when abroad. And five, if everything goes wrong, I have a family safety net to fall back on. The outcome of my personal circumstances is pretty simple. I intend to never need my invested capital that I put towards fire for anything other than achieving fire. And I'm confident my circumstances will allow me to do this for 20 years, if need be. But what if it wasn't so straightforward? Let's say that I plan on using this capital for a home deposit in five years' time. How should I change my strategy? Well, for me, it would depend on how fixed I am on that five-year timeline. If I would like to own a home, but not have to, then my strategy would remain very similar. I would just invest in the way that maximizes return over the long term. If the share market plugs along normally, I'll be fine. And if it shits itself, I'll just wait until it rebounds. Of course, this all changes if I must buy a home in five years. In this case, and with a five-year timeline, my capital really isn't safe in the market. Historical figures suggest I could lose up to 12% of capital invested over rolling five-year periods and 37% over rolling one-year periods. So the decision now becomes a toss-up between how much I'm willing to risk having to purchase a less expensive property versus the additional expected return. The difference is about 2% per annum in a high interest savings account versus about 10% per annum in the market, or about five times investment return. Note that this isn't a static decision either, because as the timeline becomes shorter, my risk of capital loss increases. It's a tough call that will be unique for everyone. It's far simpler to avoid getting into the position where I must do anything with my capital, I reckon. So taking stock of my situation, I've got no future fixed obligation for invested capital and I've withstood a 75% temporary value decline before. This means I can withstand a lot of volatility and so I'm a fair way to the right on the horizontal standard deviation axis below. As you can see, I'm past the kink and so should theoretically have a leverage portfolio with a mix of bonds and equities. See page 202 of the ebook for this efficient frontier. Up until recently though, I wasn't aware of any viable ways for retail investors to invest with leverage. The cost of margin loans at 5% per annum at the time, plus active monitoring, just didn't make sense. So my strategy to cost-effectively maximize my return 
had been to invest all my cash in Australian and global equity ETFs and forego bonds completely, as per the Efficient Frontier Asset Allocations below. See page 203 of the ebook for an Efficient Frontier without any leverage. As you can see, 100% equity portfolio is theoretically how to maximize return if leverage is cost ineffective. Theoretically, MPT uses the market-weighted portfolio. This is an all-world, all-equity market-weighted portfolio with assets allocated based on risk profile. If there were no tax or currency considerations to take into account, this would mean we should allocate less than 5% of our funds to Aussie investments. In practice though, there are regulatory benefits for Australians to invest in Australia, franking credits, dividends, and currency, which are the main reasons that the ideal all-equity portfolio for an Australian has a much higher concentration of Aussie equities than market weight. As you can tell, I'm a bit of a nerd about this stuff, and I researched the theoretical optimal domestic asset allocation for Australians quite heavily. While I didn't find exactly what I was looking for, I did find a journal paper from 2013, see page 203 for the link, that looks specifically at Aussie equities. Here's the takeaway. Overall, the optimal allocation to equities from the perspective of a taxable Australian investor is between 32% and 60%, with higher allocations leading to lower volatility of the overall equity portfolio. So, Extrapolating this to other asset classes, which seems valid, but I may be wrong, typically we're looking at 30% to 60% Aussie asset allocation range. Note that this study assumed the top tax bracket, pushing the optimal allocation higher than it would be for investors in lower tax brackets towards Australian equities. Still, I think that it's fair to assume that for all tax brackets, this range is accurate enough to use. Using leverage. I'd assume for years that leverage was just too cost and time ineffective to use to invest in equities. This is for those of us on the far right-hand side of the efficient frontier. 5% margin loans to earn about 10% per annum with 32.5 cents tax to pay on every additional dollar of income plus the stress of margin calls just doesn't appeal to me. Over the past few years though, I've discovered that there are ways to cost and time effectively invest in equities with leverage. The most well-known and widely recommended is debt recycling. Debt recycling is a process that essentially allows you to invest in shares with leverage at the same interest as a home loan, while making the interest tax deductible. Debt recycling is the most widely recommended for a good reason. It mitigates the two biggest downsides of margin loans. One, stressful margin calls and two, prohibitively high interest rates. But there's one key ingredient you need that many of us who are early on our fire journey don't have, a house. So if you have a house and are interested in leverage, I strongly suggest you read This Awesome Guide to Debt Recycling by a Family on Fire and this one by Dave from Strong Money Australia too. See page 204 of the ebook for those two links. But if you're like me and don't own a home, then what do you do? One option I've been testing out over the past year and have continued over the several years since this was written is internally geared ETFs, which are effectively corporate margin loans for retail investors. They are a relatively new product category and there are only two ASX listed options, Gear, which tracks the ASX 200 index and GGUS, which tracks the S&P 500 index. 
Currently, the borrowing rate for them both is about 2% and the leverage is centrally managed by the ETF provider, making them much more time and cost effective than a traditional margin loan alternative. At the time of writing, the borrowing rate for them both was 2% per annum and the leverage was centrally managed by the ETF provider, making them much more time and cost efficient than the traditional margin loan alternative. But at the time of writing, we were in an extreme period of volatility and internally geared ETFs underperform in extreme volatility because they have to rebalance often. Still, they are the best leverage investment option I know for retail investors who don't own a home in Australia. So if you're interested in leverage and don't own a home, I recommend you read my detailed analysis of internally geared ETFs, which you can find the link to on page 205 of the ebook, or just Google internally geared ETFs Perla. To be complete, another worthwhile consideration is NAB's Equity Builder. This product essentially allows you to take out loans to invest in a selection of safer assets, including most Aussie ETFs. Its fees are still quite high, about 4% per annum, but it doesn't have any margin calls. This is all at time of writing. The repayment behavior is like a blend of a mortgage and margin loan and is generally pretty customer friendly. Similar to buying a house, the equity builder can incur a fair bit of pricing risk if not used intelligently though. You want a dollar cost average and not lock in the price at a market peak. Unfortunately, you don't have this option when buying a house. For more information about NAB's Equity Builder, read this thorough review. See the link on page 205 of the ebook. The outcome. Now you've got the foundation to start optimizing your portfolio. Work out what your risk tolerance is. Work out when you need access to the capital you're investing. Then work out what that means for your asset allocation and apply it. It's as simple as that. About Kurt from Perla. Kurt is one of Perla's co-founders. After reading The Barefoot Investor at the age of 14, Kurt got started on his financial independence journey early. He invested his $15,000 in life savings in three stocks based on a stockbroker's recommendation right before the global financial crisis. Seeing his share portfolio plummet in value and never bounce back, Kurt resolved to learn all he could about investing and why retail investment gets it so wrong so often. In 2018, Kurt co-founded Perla with his two friends, Hayden and Nick, to make it easier for everyday Aussies to invest in shares the right way. Incremental amounts invested in diversified portfolios for the long term. We hope you enjoyed this chapter of Aussie Fire. For more inspiration, head to perla.com slash explore to browse our resources, calculators, and community insights. Perla is an authorized representative, number 1281540 of Sandlam Private Wealth Proprietary Limited, AFSL 337927. Knowledge is power, especially when investing. So always seek advice and or check out the relevant disclosure document for any financial product including the PDS and TMD before deciding, which is available from the product issuer's website. When you invest, your capital is at risk and past performance is not a reliable indicator of future investment returns.